This episode of the Inside Oz podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lance Reddick. Known to Oz fans as Detective Johnny Basil, as well as his undercover alter ego, Desmond Murbay, who passed away on March 17th, 2023, at the age of 60. On behalf of Oz fans worldwide, our thoughts are with those who knew Lance, as well as his surviving family, at this difficult time. I do not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all-encompassing. Being accused of three disses. Disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. If you a girl, so you'd be butt-ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common. Try to find the common thing that binds us all. Pride. Pride is the common thing. See, we are all of us back then. And welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz Review podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. As you heard at the beginning, this episode is being recorded shortly following the sudden passing of Lance Reddick. While to me, Lance Reddick will always be Detective Johnny Basil, or more specifically, his Jamaican alter ego, Desmond Murbay, Lance Reddick will be remembered for his extensive character work on both film and on TV, specifically his role as Sharon in the John Wick film franchise and as Cedric Daniels across all six seasons of The Wire. The outpouring of tributes that occurred immediately following his passing, and which have continued since, show Lance to have not only been a respected actor, but an extremely well-liked human being. And on behalf of Oz fans worldwide, I want to take this opportunity to extend our condolences to Mr. Reddick's family, and ask for everyone to please respect their privacy during this difficult time. Donations in Mr. Reddick's memory can be made to the Mom Cares organisation in his native Baltimore. To donate, you can visit momcares.org, that's M-O-M-C-A-R-E-S dot O-R-G, and I'll leave a link to that in the description for this episode. On behalf of all the Oz fans, thank you Lance Reddick, you will be missed. Glad to be finally back recording as well. I know that when I started with Series 4B that I said that the plan was to have an episode be released every four to six weeks. However, this episode ended up being quite heavily delayed due to me having a pretty bad sinus infection which I just didn't seem to be able to shift. Believe me, I have been wanting to record, but the sound of my voice has been really distracting with this sinus infection. It sounded as though I was carrying around an extra £2 worth of snot in my nose. And if you're going to be listening to me for upwards of two hours, that's not a sound that I really wanted to afflict upon you. So it was best to let things settle down to a point where I felt as though recording was possible. So today, we're looking back at Series 4, Episode 13, Blizzard of Oz 01. Holding an 8.2 on IMDb, the lowest rated episode of Series 4B so far, the episode was written by Tom Fontana and directed by Leslie Libman, back to direct for the first time since Series 1, Episode 5, Straight Life. Leslie had previously directed as part of a duo, 
with her husband and longtime collaborative partner Larry Williams co-directing that episode. Sadly, Larry Williams passed away on May 31st, 1999, at the age of 48. The episode originally aired on February 4th, 2001, and I've actually managed to source some viewership figures for this episode, with this episode scoring a 3.402 in viewership and a 2.2 household rating, meaning that 2.2% of the entire TV audience tuned into this episode, which when you consider that HBO isn't available in every US home is a strong number. Also on this day, it was a busy time in US sports all-star period, where in the NHL, North America beat the world 14-12, while on the gridiron, the NFC topped the AFC by 38-17 in the Pro Bowl. Away from sport and over in Russia, Dr. Kenneth Gluck, a member of the Doctors Without Borders organisation, turned up alive and well after being kidnapped in Chechnya 27 days previously. A blizzard is coming, y'all. Heaps and heaps of snow will fall from the sky and bury everything. Sidewalks, cars, houses. The ground will grow frozen and slippery. Dangerous. But here in Oz, we're oblivious to the weather outside. Here in Oz, we're all toasty, cozy, and warm. Kick off with Act 1, where Augustus is laying on his bed trying to keep himself warm and warning us of an incoming blizzard as we also see some incredibly old stock footage of Winter's past, as he tells us about heaps of snow burying everything, from the sidewalks, to the cars, to the houses, and that the ground will grow frozen and dangerous, but that in Oz they're oblivious to the outside weather, and that they're all cosy and warm, as he settles his head to rest. New York State is susceptible to harsh weather in the winter, it was only at the conclusion of 2022 and 2023 that central and eastern US states suffered another so-called polar vortex. Average temperatures tend to drop to around 2 degrees Celsius, or 35.6 degrees Fahrenheit if that's how you measure things, with January tending to be the coldest month of the year for New Yorkers. Having braced the cold and made it into work, Murphy arrives to turn on the lights in M-City, taking over from Menia who has overseen the night shift. As the lights come on, Cyril is already awake and looking at himself in the mirror. As Ryan comes around from his slumber, Cyril tells him that his hair is beginning to change back, and that his skin is improving too, the wrinkles disappearing as the aging pill works its way out of his system now that the experiment has come to a grinding halt in the wake of Nugget's death. Cut to the staff room where Gloria mentions to Pete that none of the other nine test subjects are showing any long-term effects from the drug, and that they're beginning to revert back to normal. I do kind of like how she talks about any long-term side effects without specifically saying what they are, as I think it's safe to say that being dead would definitely classify as being long-term. Pete is relieved to hear that everyone is on the road to recovery, as Murphy enters asking if the coffee is ready, hoping that they're not running low, as according to the Weather Channel, there's a big storm a-brewing, and that it would be just their luck to get snowed in with no Java. Snowed in with a bunch of murderous criminals? Fine, no problem. But no coffee while you're in there with them? Shit's gonna hit the fan, my friend. Switching the topic away from hot drinks, Murphy asks if there's been any update on how McManus is doing, Gloria saying that she's stopped by the hospital on her way in, and that he's in great spirits, that all being well he should be back next week, Murphy saying that's great news all round. This being Oz, though, it doesn't take long for things to come crashing back to Earth as we see a flashback of Nugget's comical death from the last episode, followed by Gloria arriving at her office to meet with a Mr. Jeffrey Zeitz, played here by Edward James Highland, 
credited simply as Ed Highland. Born January 10th, 1950, Edward made his TV acting debut appearing in two episodes of Lincoln in 1988, while the following year he would make his film debut appearing in a minor role in the Richard Pryor Gene Wilder comedy, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, which is a great film by the way, do check it out. Appearing in minor roles in both film and on TV throughout the 1990s, Edward would make his Broadway debut in 1998, understudying for James Murtar in Ah, Wilderness at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre, the same production that featured Oz alumni Jenna Lemire and Dylan Chalfie. In 1999, Edward would understudy for Jeffrey Damon and Harris Eulin in The Price at the Royal Theatre, and appear in minor roles in the film Cradle Will Rock, as well as one episode of Time of Your Life on TV, before appearing here on Oz. Looking surprised by the visit, Gloria asks what she can do for Jeffrey, as he explains that he's an attorney at Downing McNally and Deemer, which I'm sure you'll be shocked to learn isn't a real law firm. He explains that the Weigert Corporation have retained the firm to handle all the litigation surrounding the, and even he calls it, the so-called aging pill. Gloria sounds confused at the talk about litigation, seemingly hearing about it for the first time as Jeffrey informs her that the family of Nuggets is suing for $25 million. I've never understood how figures like this get attached to lawsuits. Do people just pick a number out of thin air and hope to get it? Or do they set the bar enormously high and then be prepared to come down to something a bit more realistic? Either way, Gloria has been named as co-defendant, which puts the fear of God into Gloria. And rightfully so, she hasn't got that kind of money working as a prison doctor. Jeffrey, however, seems confident that the family will settle out of court, but the more serious problem comes in the shape of the State Medical Board of Ethics, who he admits are a decidedly less predictable group, and that they want to hold a hearing to determine if there was any malpractice on Gloria's part, i.e. did she provide a good standard of care during the experiment. If Gloria is found guilty, she would be at risk of losing, and would most likely lose her medical licence meaning that Gloria would no longer be able to practice medicine in the state. She could reapply for a medical license in another state, but it would be very difficult to gain one with that on a record. That's not to say that she would be unable to practice at all, she just wouldn't be able to treat patients, but she could conduct research at a university, or even undertake laboratory work. Naturally though, Gloria has gone straight to the worst case scenario of thinking that her medical career is over. And as she tries to leave for the day, she's greeted by the press at the reception gates, with reporters asking if it's true that she's been forced to resign, and another saying that Weigert have said that Gloria mishandled the experiment. So it would appear that Weigert are looking to throw Gloria under the bus, and place the blame squarely on her. Gloria heads back down the corridor from where she came to get away from the press, as we cut to M City where the inmates are tuned into what is obviously a gripping weather forecast with 15 inches of snow set to fall over the next three days. New York has an average winter snowfall of around 25 inches, so for 60% of that to fall in just three days would cause havoc. Not only that, but temperatures are also set to drop below zero, with winds of up to 30 miles per hour also expected, and a travel advisory warning has been issued. I wonder if that will play a part in things to come a little later on. Officer Armstrong heads over to Ryan and tells him that he has a visitor. Ryan asks who it is, as he doesn't seem to be expecting anybody, and Armstrong tells him, in typical New York fashion, I don't know, some broad. Excellent work there, Armstrong. I know you're not working the desk or anything, but at least try and get some details. 
Ryan heads off to the visiting room, which this episode is behind the protective glass where the two people interact through the phones. We don't tend to see this one as often as the other kind of visiting room where they just sat around the tables, but considering what happened to Supreme last episode when he was stabbed by Tug Daniels, it could be that that visiting room is off limits for now. Ryan sits down to meet with his visitor, Suzanne Fitzgerald. Who are you? My name is Suzanne Fitzgerald. Do we know each other? Yes, but we haven't seen each other since you were a very small child. Look, lady, I'm not real big on nostalgia, so what do you want? Ryan, I came because I have something to tell you, and it's something I think you're going to find impossible to understand. Try me. I'm your mother. My mother's dead. No. I'm your real mother. The woman that you thought was your mother. My mother's dead! I've accused Ryan, or more specifically Dean Windsor's acting of Ryan, to being a bit soap opery in the past. And this story of having your real mother turn up out of the blue is definitely the kind of thing that would have shown up in a soap opera around this time. In fact, in something of a strange coincidence, EastEnders, a soap opera here in the UK that's been on the air since 1985, had begun a real mum storyline at more or less the same time that this was broadcast. Although the payoff wouldn't come until around six months later, whereas here we obviously have to move things along a lot quicker. Is it a bit daft? Yes. Is it as daft as the ageing pill? Not by a long shot. But it certainly feels like this was written quite hastily just to get us through the second half of series four. What it does mean, though, is that this is the first appearance of Suzanne Fitzgerald, played here by Broadway legend Betty Buckley. Born July 3rd, 1947 in Big Spring, Texas and raised in Fort Worth, Betty studied at Texas Christian University where she was a member of the Zeta Tau Alpha Women's Fraternity. Prior to her acting career, Betty competed in a number of beauty pageants where she was crowned Miss Fort Worth in 1966, and also placing as runner-up in the Miss Texas competition. After being spotted by a talent scout, Betty was invited to compete as part of the Miss America pageant in Atlantic City, before returning to Texas Christian University to complete her degree, although she would still take part in USO tours visiting troops during the Vietnam War. Having worked for a time as a reporter for the Fort Worth Press, Betty moved to New York in 1969, landing the role of Martha Johnson in the musical 1776 on her first day in the city, which she performed until 1972. During this time, Betty would also appear in Promises Promises at the Prince of Wales Theatre in London's West End. Appearing off-Broadway in 1972 in What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a State Like This, Betty returned to the Broadway stage the following year at the Imperial Theatre in Pippin, replacing Jill Claiborough in the role of Catherine. Betty would make her film acting debut in 1976, appearing as Miss Collins in Carrie, based on Stephen King's 1974 novel, while in 1977 she made her TV acting debut in Ryan's Hope, as well as the TV movie The Rubber Gun Squad. In 1982, Betty's big break came when she appeared as Grizabella in the original Broadway production of Cats, opening on October 7th at the Winter Garden Theatre. An instant hit with critics and the public, Betty won the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical for her role, as well as receiving a Drama Desk Award nomination. 
1985, after appearing on Broadway in productions of Song and Dance and Drood, Betty released her debut album, simply titled Betty Buckley. That same year, Betty was nominated for her first Daytime Emmy Award for her role in Special Treat. Following a three-year hiatus, Betty returned to the Broadway stage in 1988 in Carrie the Musical, Stephen King's novel this time being adapted as an all-singing, all-dancing musical. Proving to be a disaster of an idea, the show closed after only five performances. In 1992, Betty appeared in three episodes of Square One TV, as well as the movie Rain Without Thunder, and returned to the theatre stage in the Three Penny Opera which played at the Williamstown Theatre Festival in Massachusetts. That same year, Betty appeared in productions of Gypsy in Arizona and The Fourth Wall in Chicago. In 1994, Betty appeared on film as Virginia in Wyatt Earp, while in 1995 she returned to Broadway at the Minskoff Theatre appearing in Sunset Boulevard for a little over a year in the role of Norma Desmond. Betty would make her final Broadway appearance in 1997, appearing in Triumph of Love at the Royal Theatre, and would also release the album Much More, before appearing here on Oz. Cut to the sexy time bathroom where Ryan is pounding away at Claire, but I think it's safe to say that neither of them are enjoying this, as Claire looks bored as hell with a face that reads, hurry up already, and Ryan obviously has other things on his mind. He does eventually finish, Claire accusing him of having been in there since Halloween. Ryan tells her that he has a lot on his mind, but Claire says that she doesn't give a shit as Ryan calls her a cunt. Comparing their arguing to that of an old married couple, Claire says that the thrill has gone from the relationship, Ryan struggling to contain his joy as he asks if that means that they're through. Claire says that it's time to move on to greener pastures, as she reattaches Ryan's handcuffs and he jokes about being heartbroken as they head out of the bathroom. I don't know if they've gone for some different lighting in this room than they did before, or if a colour filter has been applied over the footage, but it looks much darker than when we've seen this place previously. Such is the issue with filming in an old building rather than an actual set. Obviously, with an actual set, you'd be able to move walls around to get extra lighting in, or have extra lighting coming in from above, but with the limited space with which the show had to work with in the old biscuit factory, Especially when filming scenes in enclosed spaces like this rather than the more open areas like M-City, you've got to do the best you can with the space you have. Cut to Unit J where we see Clayton doing some push-ups as Cyril makes his way through the unit with the lunch trays, with Alvin and Johnny sat at the communal table playing cards. In this shot as well, you can clearly see a rather prominent CCTV camera, something which is often a bone of contention for various aspects of the show. If Oz has CCTV, which clearly it does, otherwise what's the point of that thing, then how does so much murder, rape, drug taking and whatever else manage to fly under the radar, unless every instance of it happens in some kind of CCTV blind spot? Speaking of blind spots as well, that camera looks as though it's pointing directly at the walls above the cells. That camera isn't going to see shit pointed at that angle. Cyril hands out the lunches as Johnny calls for Clayton to join them, but Clayton is more focused on his exercise routine and tells Johnny, fuck you. Before Cyril can continue on his rounds, Claire turns on the charm asking if Cyril is afraid of her, and that he really doesn't need to be, telling Cyril that she's good friends with his brother, and that she'd like to be good friends with him too, as she squeezes his ass, And not just a pinch of the ass either, she's proper in there, 
Both hands giving it a right good roar. Not putting up with being sexually harassed, Cyril clocks Claire in the face with one of the lunch trays, screaming, You can't do that to me! as he's apprehended by another CEO while Claire manages to get in a few whacks with a nightstick. Cut to McManus' office, where Murphy is acting as unit supervisor in McManus' absence, and he's been joined by Ryan and Gloria, who is explaining to Ryan that Claire has said that Cyril hit her without provocation, Ryan calling Claire a lying cunt. Gloria says that in any event, which would suggest that she agrees with Ryan, she has had Cyril sedated and that he'll be kept in the hospital overnight. Murphy appears to be at a loose end, saying that they keep coming back to the same problem with Cyril and are running out of things they can do to help him at Oz, and that they're thinking of having Cyril transferred to the Connolly Institute. Ryan, understandably, is up in arms about this. Despite everything, his love for his brother does always seem to come through in the end, but you've got to think that in a real-world setting, this would have likely happened much sooner, if not at the very beginning of Cyril's sentence. Murphy reassures Ryan that no decision will be made until McManus returns, and asks for Ryan to be taken away, shouting for John, as Ryan begs Gloria not to let them do this, and saying that Cyril won't survive in the Institute. But Gloria offers nothing in the way of a response, presumably because she needs to be careful with whatever she's involved with right now considering the pending lawsuit. Cut to the visiting room where Ryan is waiting, and he's wearing his Green Island tracksuit top. Is this the first appearance of this? I honestly don't recall seeing it before. This is something that fans of the show have been clamouring for for years. I've been on message boards, discussions on Reddit, all kinds of things with fans of ours that are always asking, was this a real jacket? Where can I get one? But I have never been able to track this exact jacket down. You can get jackets like it in the same green, the closest being an Adidas Originals jacket with the three stripes on the sleeve, and there are a bunch of Island football team jackets made by Adidas, or you can get Island or Notre Dame Varsity jackets or Letterman jackets that are close to it. But I've never found one with the curved Island lettering on the back, which leads me to believe that it doesn't actually exist, and that the lettering was added to a pre-existing jacket. We've spoken before about how you need to get legal clearance for brands or trademarks to allow them to be seen on a show, which if this were a genuine Adidas jacket, the show would have had to pay for legal clearance to use the three stripes design. What I reckon has happened here is that Dean Winters has gone to a seamstress or a tailor with a non-branded green varsity style jacket of his own and asked, can you stitch the word island onto the back of this please? and has just turned up with it on set and decided to use it in a scene. Ryan is waiting for his dad Seamus to arrive, Kevin Conway making his return to the show for the first time since Series 3, Episode 8, in what is only his second appearance on the show. I thought we'd seen him more than that. But he walks into the room complaining about the snow, a callback to the previous weather report and a recurring plot point throughout this episode. Ryan sarcastically tells his dad that he appreciates him making the effort to visit, and informs him about Cyril possibly being sent to the asylum, something which Seamus doesn't seem too concerned about. Ryan says that if Cyril goes to the Institute, then he'll be gone forever. Seamus asking what difference does it make whether it's this shithole or that shithole, but Ryan says that at least in Oz he's got him, Seamus firing back sarcastically calling Ryan a force for good in Cyril's life. Bit of a case of the pot calling the kettle black there, Seamus isn't exactly winning any Father of the Year award, as Ryan tells him, fuck you, 
although he does say it in a muted tone, almost under his breath. Perhaps indicative that Ryan still fears his dad to some degree. Seamus tells him that's my boy and that Ryan didn't call him there to talk about Cyril at all, and that Ryan has some other nonsense to discuss, telling him to spit it out so that he can get gone before the roads get worse. Ryan says the name Suzanne Fitzgerald, and the entire complexion of the conversation changes in that one moment. Seamus suddenly doesn't have any sarcastic quips to fire Ryan's wit, as Ryan says she came to see him and told him that she's Ryan's real mother. Much like how his son accused Claire earlier on, Seamus calls Suzanne a lying cunt, or more specifically, a miserable lying cunt, which he shouts. Ryan realises, holy shit, what Suzanne has told him is true, as Seamus makes a quick exit. Now, I know I've said previously about Dean Winter's acting ability being somewhat questionable, and how I wouldn't say that he's been what I'd call great in any particular scene. However, I will admit that he was good in this one. His delivery of Suzanne's name was sharp and to the point that you completely buy into Seamus' on-screen reaction. Not only that, but Ryan's change in facial expression when he picks up on Seamus' discomfort was spot on. It's not enough for me to change my opinion completely, I stand by my previous assessment, but I will say that Dean was good here. And that is also in part down to being able to play off someone the calibre of Kevin Conway, who is great as the unlikable Seamus. Cut to Gloria's office, where Ryan is telling her that it's a son's obligation to protect his mother, no matter who that's from, including his own father, and that he's always known that the woman he thought to be his mother never loved him, and that now he sees why. Gloria asks about Suzanne, Ryan saying that he thinks she's his mum, but that he chased her out and he now has no idea how to contact her. Gloria offers to help locate her, Ryan asking if she'll really do that for him, Ryan once again making the entire situation about himself. He also asks about sorting the situation involving Cyril, but Gloria tells him she can't make any promises as it's not her decision, as Ryan holds her hand asking her to plead his case. He asks Gloria not to let them separate him and Cyril, as the familiar call from Cyril for his brother is heard from the background, Ryan asking him how he's doing as they go to leave, but he makes sure to say to Gloria that he knows that she'll do what's right, Ryan continuing to be as manipulative as ever as the scene closes. Despite the praise I've just given him for his performance in the previous scene, Dean is back to being very soap opery in this one with Gloria. Whether that's the material they've been given to work with or not, that's open for debate. But this isn't the first time that I've said this about these two. I just don't think Dean and Lawrence seem to work well together. Neither seems to be able to get the best out of the other. Fade up on a flashback on Clayton going all Travis Bickle and attempting to assassinate Devlin, as we then cut to meeting with his mum Lenore, first time seeing her since Series 4, Episode 7. She asks about how he's getting along and asks about who the other men on the block are, Clayton saying that he's doing fine and is in Unit J with other cops. Knowing that puts a smile on Lenore's face, a sentiment which Clayton doesn't share in how he describes Johnny and Alvin, and he tells her to stop worrying about him and that he isn't a little boy anymore. That might be true, Clayton, but you are acting like a dickhead teenager lately. He expands by saying that she and Leo treated him like he was some fragile piece of china, afraid that he'd break at the slightest touch, 
blaming it on his dad being quote-unquote stupid enough to get shanked when Clayton was just seven years old. Lenore asks her son not to speak that way of his father, which she's right, there's no need to be a dick about what happened to his dad, but Clayton explains that he meant that she was being overly protective. Lenore asks if he'd have preferred if she'd just let him run with the gangs, Clayton saying yes, and that maybe it wouldn't have taken him so long to find his balls, and that for the first time in his life, he knows who he is, his true self, and has discovered the thing that he was born to do. Losing the plot a bit, Clayton then claims that he can change the world, but that he can't do it while he's tucked away in Unit J, at least not yet. Lenore picks up on that comment, asking Clayton what he's planning, as Clayton seems to snap out of his messianic ramblings and kisses his mother's hand, telling her not to worry, though she does still look concerned. Back in Unit J, Robson arrives with a post as Alvin and Johnny are having an arm wrestling contest. See, these are the things you have to do while waiting for that pool table to arrive. Robson hands Johnny a letter from his wife, saying that she sounds worse and worse each time, and that maybe he should let her come and finally visit him. The mailroom staff, of course, have to examine the mail before it can be distributed, hence how Robson knows the contents of this letter. Johnny sarcastically tells Robson that he's grateful for his input, as Robson hands over Alvin's mail, which consists of a number of magazines, including Newsweek, Field and Stream, which is presumably about hunting or the great outdoors, but the piece de resistance is a copy of Swank, Alvin claiming that he likes his reading to be well-rounded, as Robson tells him to pay particular attention to the pussy on page 15. Unlike when I previously looked up the issue of Hustler that Augustus had delivered to him, I couldn't find a whole lot about the February 2001 issue of Swank, at least not from anywhere where I'd have to fork out some cash for it, which I'm not going to do. Robson then tells Clayton that he has nothing for him today as he goes to leave, jokingly calling Clayton tough guy. Clayton tells Robson to bite him, which is the worst thing he could have done really, because if you feed Robson something like that, you know that he's going to, well, bite I suppose, and asks Clayton where he wants to be bitten which sends Clayton into a rage as he then tries to get at Robson, who actually manages to push Clayton away quite easily, Clayton, if you will, having bitten off more than he can chew. Claire, who's particularly perturbed by this as she says, Oh, not again, restrains Clayton with the help of another CEO as she tells Robson to take off. But as he goes, he manages to get in one more taunt at Clayton, who calls him a fucking dickless Nazi fag. I think we need to have a talk about Clayton and his mental state. We've already had the possibility of Cyril being transferred to the Connolly Institute come up in this episode, but I'd make a case for Clayton possibly being sent there too. Thin-skinned probably isn't the right term to use. I don't doubt that Clayton doesn't have some degree of mental or physical toughness to him in order to become a CEO in the first place. But we saw back in Series 3 when he was stationed in M-City that he was easily overpowered whenever he got into altercations with inmates. Even Carlo Ricardo, who was portrayed as being a bit of a mummy's boy, was able to get the upper hand on Clayton on a number of occasions. And we see it again here when Robson just sort of bats him away into the arms of Claire. Clayton is completely out of his depth, much like how he was when he was a CEO. In terms of his mental well-being, he flies off the handle any time anyone says anything even remotely derogatory to him. You just have to walk past him and say, Hey, dickhead, and he's all... Rah, 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 rah. You even see that here with Claire, saying that if he keeps this up, she's going to have to spank him, 
Which is like catnip to a guy like Alvin, who's quick to get in a joke about how Clayton might enjoy it. Which again sends Clayton flailing around trying to get to Alvin before finally being placed in his cell. He demands that Claire uncuff him, but she's having none of it and tells him that he needs to learn not to run with scissors. Which is not only a good idiom to use, but also pretty sound life advice. Johnny tells Alvin they need to do something about Clayton, and how they've tried being friendly, but the time has come for something a bit more drastic. Alvin joking about boiling Clayton in oil, which just sounds hideous. Rather than just being another quick jerk from Alvin, it's actually a reference to an old method of execution dating back to the days of the Roman Empire under the rule of Emperor Nero. In addition to oil, boiling was used as a method of execution through the Middle Ages, with records indicating a man being boiled in boiling water in Smithfield, England as far back as 1522, while the Ninth Statute passed in 1531 under the reign of King Henry VIII, which made boiling alive the prescriptive method of capital punishment for murder committed by poisoning. The act was repealed in 1547 under King Edward VI, while the practice was also used in Germany and France as well as parts of Asia between the 13th and 17th centuries. In more recent times, according to an article by Insight Crime, a number of people are believed to have been murdered by boiling by the Peruvian militant group Shining Path between 1980 and 2000, while the practice has also been depicted in popular culture in the TV series Shogun, as well as the movies King Solomon's Mines and Baghdad Cafe. Rather than see Clayton be boiled alive, Johnny suggests talking to Leo about possibly having Clayton transferred to solitary, which if we're not going to send him to the Connolly Institute is probably the next best thing. But Alvin says that Clayton is like a son to Leo, and asks Johnny if he would ever put his own son in solitary. Johnny thinks hard about his response, until it eventually dawns on him that he hasn't actually seen his son for what must be well over a year by this point, as we cut to the area outside of Leo's office where Johnny has gone to meet with him. Before he does though, we see Floria struggling with opening one of her desk drawers, Johnny offering some helpful advice about how to jiggle it open. I liked the little smile that came across Johnny's face as Floria was struggling to open that. Not that he was laughing at Floria, he just clearly remembered. Ah yes, I remember that drawer. Leo calls Johnny in and Johnny is very complimentary about Leo's new office, as Leo says about hoping that Johnny isn't there to ask about a new microwave, which was a bit odd. Unless he was meaning that the office cost a lot to refurbish and he hasn't got any money for any new appliances or something. I'm not sure where he was going with that, it's all a bit weird. Johnny says that he's there to discuss Clayton, Leo jumping in and saying that he's been meaning to swing by Unit J, but he's just been so busy. Johnny asks about how Mary is doing, which Leo sort of pauses over before saying that she's okay. Which again is a bit odd as it sort of implies that Johnny may be unaware of her and Leo divorcing. Johnny will have gotten to know Mary a little bit when he was working as Leo's secretary during the election campaign, but he'd been removed from that post prior to Leo revealing that Mary was seeking a divorce. It is possible that he does know about Leo's situation, but in order for him to do so it will have had to have happened off screen. Which is a possibility, as Leo will have presumably had a working relationship with Johnny prior to his confession to killing Bruno Gergen. Leo returns the favour asking how Johnny's wife Abby is doing, Johnny revealing that he hasn't seen Abby since the day of his trial, and when Leo asks him why not, he says he's too mortified. Leo says that he's the last person to be counselling on marriage, but he says that Johnny shouldn't be pushing Abby away, and that if he pushes once too often, she won't be there when he needs her. 
We cut back to Unit J where Alvin is sat at the table playing cards while Johnny makes a phone call, asking Abby to come visit, and to come soon. Good little scene this one, similar to previous scenes which do a good job of reminding us that these men do have entire lives outside of the walls of ours. Leo has always looked out for Johnny, but what Johnny did in getting hooked on drugs and murdering Bruno was out of his control. Despite Johnny being a cop, Leo had no choice but to punish him to the full extent of the law. But he didn't completely abandon Johnny once he went to Unit J, an act of kindness in and of itself. He could have just as easily placed Johnny in Gen Pop or Solitary, or even M City, and allowed him to fend for himself. Doing that, though, would have likely ended in Johnny getting killed, his true identity having been revealed to the rest of the inmates. You'll remember how Poet was acting towards him a few episodes back when doing the Unit J lunch rounds, which ultimately reflects very badly on Leo as he would have been indirectly responsible for Johnny's death in that situation. So it's probably best we didn't end up going down that road. It's so weird as well talking about these scenes so soon following Lance Reddick's unfortunate passing. When I first wrote about these scenes, he was still with us, the release of John Wick 4 was imminent, and by the time it came to finish writing and recording, Lance Reddick was no longer with us. It's so strange. After a quick rendition of Let It Snow from Augustus to transition us back to M-City, we see Jazz complaining about the cold while a passing Chucky tells him to put on a sweater which was a really good line playing on the fact that whenever we see Jazz, he's usually wearing a vest. Whereas it must be freezing here as he's actually sprung for a long sleeve t-shirt and gilet. This just serves to get us to Beecher sitting down with Rebido and the O'Reillys asking about when Boost Malley's wedding is, Rebidoing informing him that it's to take place tomorrow. Beecher asks, if that's the case, then shouldn't they be doing something for Boost Malley's? Like having a bachelor party or something? Ryan is quick to question the possibility of such a thing occurring in Oz, as is Rebido, saying that bachelor parties are one part alcohol and one part stripper, two things of which are in short supply. Beecher leaves in a huff, saying that tomorrow is a big day for Boost Malley's, but to forget that he brought it up. But in fairness, Beecher, it was a bit of a silly idea to propose. Rebido sees what's going on, though, pointing out to Ryan that Beecher misses Keller and is looking for something to do to fill the gap. But Ryan seems pleased that Keller is gone, changing topics by asking about Rebido being best man, Ryan reckoning if that's the case then the marriage is doomed. As night falls on M-City, Boost Malis is talking about how this time tomorrow he'll be an old married man, as he looks to his friend for reassurance about whether he's too old to get married, and how things are going to work with Norma on the outside, and with him still being in Oz, and whether or not he's crazy for even doing this. Rebido says that you've got to be a little crazy to tie the knot, but that it's a good kind of crazy, as Boost Malley says that he and Norma can't even consummate their vows. Rebido, proving himself to be the best best man ever, informs his friend that he and Sister Pete have arranged, for one night only, for Boost Malley's and Norma to have use of one of Oz's old hospitality suites so they can consummate the marriage. The hospitality suites presumably having been out of action since the ban on conjugals came into effect. Boosmalis is in shock, saying that conjugal visits aren't allowed anymore, but apparently Sister Pete has pulled a string or two. I bet she has the saucy devil. As the realisation sets in, Boosmalis says that he and Norma are going to romp through Cupid's Grove, an expression that I had never heard back then, and one that I've never heard since. But there's just one slight issue. Boosmalis confides in Rebido that he's going to have to teach him what to do, as it turns out that Boosmalis is in fact still a virgin. 
Struggling to comprehend this startling revelation, Ribido whispers to himself that Ryan was right. This marriage is indeed doomed. The next day arrives with Ray in his ceremonial robes ready to conduct the service, but he pulls out his pocket watch. Very hipster of you there, Ray. Checking the time as apparently Norma is running a little late. He assures Boos Malis that he's sure that she'll be there any minute. Boos Malis seems to think so too, as Ribido says that she's not that late. Boos Malis echoing his sentiment, saying that 45 minutes isn't late late. I mean, it's pretty late. Or as Boos Malis says here, it's fashionably late. But at least she's still possible to turn up within the same hour. Got to mention as well, before we go any further, Boos Malis in his check jacket and his bow tie, he looks adorable. Who wouldn't want to marry that guy? Of course, this is the second time that we've had a wedding take place on the show, the previous one being between Jefferson Keane and his wife Mavis. The difference being that this time, Norma is to be attending Oz for the ceremony rather than being in a different venue and having someone stand in for both parties. No explanation is given as to why this change has occurred, I'm assuming it's just to add to what is about to happen, but back in episode 2, Ray, under Leo's instruction, was very clear about how a proxy wedding was going to work. Well, you'll be here, and your fiancé will be at your local Baptist church. You'll both be exchanging vows at the same time, and each of you will have someone standing in for the other person. Ray says that due to the snow flurries, the traffic must be snarled, or maybe she's got a flat tyre, or a faulty carburetor, or some other excuse as to why she isn't there. Sister Pete joins the scene, telling Ray that she's called Norma's home and only got the answering machine, which could be considered a good sign, but she also called the studio where they filmed Miss Sally's schoolyard, and a very nice man there said that he hadn't seen Norma all day, which seen as Norma only answers the fan mail and portrays Miss Sally at outside events, why would they have? Boos Malice thinks it cute that Norma took the day off from work to marry him, as everyone else seems sure that Norma will be there any minute now, the likelihood seeming less and less likely each time it's said. Pete also mentions the snow as a possibility for Norma's tardiness, but Ray politely tells her, Pete, we've already been there. Trying to find something, anything, to put a positive spin on things, Pete tells Boos Malice that he looks very nice. Boosmal is taking the compliment and saying that it's the happiest day of his life, as we get a long shot of the four of them waiting for Norma to close out Act 1. I'm sure she'll be here any minute. Yep. Any minute. Any second. Well, she's not that late. No. 45 minutes is not late late. It's fashionably late. Plus, I'm sure that with the snow flurries, the traffic's it's just got to be snarled. The snow flurries, of course. She might have even gotten a flat tire. Or a faulty carburetor. She told me she's been hearing a strange ping in her engine. Well, see, there you go. Pete, did you reach her? I called Norma's home and got the voicemail, so I called the studio where they make Miss Sally's schoolyard, and a very nice man there said that he hadn't seen her all day. My sweetie took off from work. To marry me. I'm sure she'll be here any minute. Right. What with um, the snow and... Pete, we've been there. Uh-huh. Well, you look very nice. Thanks. This is the happiest day of my life. 
2 gets underway with Ray talking to Samuel Goujon about converting to Catholicism. Although Ray is slightly concerned about Cloutier thinking that Ray might be rushing Samuel into the decision, but Samuel assures him that he doesn't care what Cloutier thinks, and that he knows in his heart that he is meant to be a Roman Catholic. So while this is the first time officially that we've met Samuel Goujon, played here by Blaine Perry, no relation to Luke, he's actually been on the show as a background character for quite some time, first appearing in Series 2, Episode 2, Ancient Tribes. He was also part of William Cudney's Christian boycott of Miss Sally's schoolyard back in Series 3. Blaine Perry had limited acting credits to his name prior to his appearance here, his first acting credit coming in 1992 for the short film Sleeveless Heart. Joining the cast of Oz in 1998 as part of the show's second series, Blaine also earned credits that year for the short film Billy Twist, while the following year he had a minor role in the short film Shame No More, which brings us to this point in time. So Ray arranges Samuel's baptism for the following Saturday and the two of them shake hands. It was a bit odd coming out of the previous scene of Booth Maller's wedding to then have Ray here too. Ordinarily, when we fade to black and have a passage of time, we go to someone else's story, whereas on this occasion, we've got Ray involved in two separate stories back to back. The second one is more focused around him and his involvement with Cloutier, whereas he was just there at the end of the Booth Maller's story, but I don't know, it just seemed odd to have him appearing in two separate stories so close to each other. Cut to the cafeteria slash chapel where Cloutier is reading Daniel 6.23 to his congregation, but he notices Ray making his way out of his office with Samuel, and Ray isn't exactly subtle with what he's achieved here, shooting a grin in Cloutier's direction, which does actually seem to rattle Cloutier somewhat, causing him to lose his place in his reading. Timmy Kirk also seems shocked at Samuel's defection, perhaps viewing it as an indication that Cloutier's authority isn't as strong as what he was led to believe. Later in the library, Cloutier is with his group when Ray approaches, asking, slash gloating, that he hopes that Cloutier isn't upset about Samuel's decision to become a Catholic. Cloutier asking if by upset does Ray mean that he's angry, which he says that he isn't, but he does fear for Samuel's soul. Ray assures him that Samuel's soul will be fine, telling Cloutier to believe him, which Cloutier points out as being the bottom line in all of this. Ray calls Cloutier a cool customer as Cloutier asks how would Ray want them to behave, whether that be red-faced with anger or gripped by jealousy, but says that that's been Ray's game ever since Timmy joined Cloutier's side, and that Ray has been keeping a tally of who saves the most souls ever since. Ray dismisses that remark, but Cloutier says that Ray's head hasn't accepted what his heart already knows, and that he's baptising Samuel Goujon just to get back at him as he and the rest of the Cloutier congregation get up and leave. We get a quick scene of Timmy over in Unit B making a deal with Robson, as we then see Samuel being wheeled into the hospital having been beaten up. No prizes for guessing who by. He's suffering with what an orderly calls severe head trauma, so it's safe to say that this baptism won't be going ahead, nor will we likely be seeing him again anytime soon. Over in, well, I suppose it's Murphy's office for the time being, Ray confronts Cloutier about what happened to Samuel. How could you? How could you have Samuel Guchon beaten? Mukata, I would never do such a thing. What has happened to Samuel, it, it's anathema to me. Are you saying this attack is a coincidence? I pray that it is. But if not, and a member of my congregation is responsible, he will be punished. Yeah, well, do me a favor. You leave the punishment to me, you understand? Of course. 
Over in the cafeteria, Cloutier does his own confronting, asking Timmy for the truth about whether or not he was involved in having Samuel beaten up. Timmy tells him, yes, yes I was, as he applies a heroic dose of salt to his bread, and that he did in accordance with Matthew 26-24. Woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man has betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born, and that Cloutier had taught him those very words. Cloutier accuses Timmy of deliberately misconstruing those words' meaning, as Timmy says that Samuel had to be punished for turning his back on the Lord, as he then grabs his lunch tray and heads off. I'm not sure if the salt on bread has a particular symbolic meaning here. If I were a more religious man, I might be able to pinpoint it a bit more. But in Leviticus 2.13 in the Old Testament, the Lord instructs the Israelites to season every gift of their grain with salt, while in the New Testament the practice originates in the words of Christ where he said, I am the bread of life, and you are the salt of the earth. The offering of bread with salt is a welcoming custom in Slovak culture as a symbol of hospitality, while it is also found in Judaism with the bread symbolising never-knowing hunger, and the salt representing life having flavour. Cut to M-City where we get a rare meeting between Ray and Saeed, and even Saeed is sporting a big smile when he sees Ray there, so presumably they have a strong enough relationship with each other despite their limited interactions. Although it's been a while since we last saw Saeed meet with Sister Pete as well, we know that Saeed has a lot of respect for her, but a meeting with Ray is even rarer. Ray hands Saeed a piece of paper with a schedule of events, Ray having had the cafeteria cleared so that the Muslim inmates can practice Ramadan, meaning that we're currently around November time in Oz, with Ramadan that year beginning on November 15th. With the episode being The Blizzard of Oz 01 and with it airing in February of that year, this places us a little bit in the future. What it does mean, though, is that, technically, Oz is already in a post-September 11th terror attacks timeline. Now, obviously, this will have been filmed roughly a year before the events of that day, and there was no way anyone could have predicted those terrible scenes. So the representation of the Muslims here is still relatively fair. But post-9-11, there was something of a shift in the perception of Muslims and Islam being the enemy of the US. Something which I don't particularly remember affecting Series 5 of the show, which was the first series to air following the attacks, and which probably would have still been filming at the time of the tragedy. But I don't recall whether or not it's even referenced on the show. But other shows on other networks certainly seem to play into those elevated fears more and more in the years that followed. Saeed doesn't seem to be buying that Ray has only come down to M-City to give him the schedule. And he's right, in a way. Much like Sister Pete, Ray only comes down to M-City when he absolutely has to. He's never been a regular visitor, although he probably does go down there more than Pete does. And he could have easily got this schedule to Saeed another way without visiting M-City. After a bit of badgering, Ray confides in Saeed that he made an assumption about Cloutier being a phony, something which Saeed says he isn't, and that it all started when Timmy converted. Ray saying that he thought that Timmy should be celebrating Christ through what he calls the One True Church. He questions, believing as he does, whether or not he should fight to keep Timmy if Ray believes that the faith that Timmy is now chosen to be wrong, or should he just be happy that Timmy has found God's love, no matter where that may be. Those are some very loaded questions for a man like Saeed to provide answers for. Obviously his religion has different views to the one that Ray follows, and the one that Cloutier follows for that matter. But he quotes the prophet saying, Let there be no compulsion in religion, and that each soul journeys alone, and that Ray must lead as well as follow. 
Rhea says that doing that is impossible, Saeed admitting that if serving Allah were easy, then everybody would follow him, as we then see Rhea heading downstairs to speak with Cloutier once again. He stops short of saying that what's been going on between them would be an ecumenical matter, but that it might be a good time to have an ecumenical service. Cloutier calling it extraordinary that he just so happened to have been thinking the exact same thing. Cloutier admits that he accused Ray of being consumed with envy, Ray admitting that he indeed was, but Cloutier says that he was too, Ray proclaiming that their sins are their bond. The two of them leave together as we cut to the ecumenical service, which also includes Saeed, as well as an unnamed rabbi. Inmates of the multiple faiths have gathered in the cafeteria chapel for the service and are acting cordially, with the only one looking out of sorts being Timmy, as Ray asks for them all to pray to close out Act 2. The house of God has many rooms. If a person chooses to move from one room to another, we, who are left behind, must rest assured that the room that we're in is not empty. God's presence fills every room. God's love shines through the entire house. Let us pray. Act 3 begins with Augustus reminiscing about the images of Courier and Ives and Norman Rockwell depicting America in the wintertime, particularly those of people ice skating on a frozen lake or the fluffy white crystals of new-fallen snow, Augustus catching a superimposed one in his hands. He says that maybe there was a time when life was idyllic, when children didn't go to school and kill other kids, an oddly poignant point considering that I'm recording this shortly after the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee, and that we now view these paintings as nostalgic, even if it's for a place that we've never seen, or longing for a time that we've never actually been a part of, as we see some stock footage of a young person attempting to ski before falling flat on their ass. We rejoin things in the library where Schillinger is confiding in Cloutier that he feels as though he's hit rock bottom, only for more trapdoors to open to plunge him further into despair. Cloutier tells him that God only gives us as much suffering as we can endure, so it's nice to know that we've got a preset amount awaiting us in life. Cheers, God. And that he does so to test our faith, and to make us appreciate the good that we have. Seems a pretty dickish thing for the Almighty to be doing there. Somebody could give themselves to you completely and they'd just go, Oh yeah, well, how about this? Do you still believe in me now? Schillinger seems to concur, asking for Cloutier's forgiveness as he says that God is a sick fuck, but switches the conversation to Carrie's imminent visit and how she's been coming regular since Hank disappeared, and that he's told her every time, don't worry, Hank will be home soon, and that now he gets her to tell her that Hank is coming home tomorrow, only that he'll be coming home in a box, and he slams his Bible shut as he leaves. Over in the visiting room, which is back in action now, now that everybody's meeting around the tables once again, Carrie is waiting for Schillinger to arrive, and she goes to stand up to give Schillinger a hug. But Carrie is very heavily pregnant now, and he tells her to stay seated. Carrie mentions about having to scrape the ice off her car herself, keeping the bad weather theme going, as Schillinger asks how she's feeling and what the doctors have said, Carrie saying that she might end up delivering earlier than she's due. Schillinger can't keep the pleasantries going any longer. He has to tell Carrie about Hank, but he says that he needs her to stay strong for the sake of the baby. He tells her that Hank has been killed, which obviously upsets her immensely, and despite Schillinger telling her that things will be okay, Carrie asks how can that be, asking how she's going to live with a baby but no husband. 
The news, coupled with pondering her future as a single mother, is enough to send Carrie into labour. Schillinger demanding a CO to get a doctor down there, as we then cut to the hospital where Gloria, a jack-of-all-trades it would seem, helps Carrie to deliver her baby. The baby seems to be perfectly healthy, and Gloria and Carrie are both relieved with a successful delivery, and so is Schillinger to some degree, but he also looks a little confused about something. Something which we'll come back to another time as we go to the crime flashback of Edward Golson. Sorry, Colonel Edward Golson, played here by John Derman. Born January 9th, 1945 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, John attended Northeast Catholic High School where he played football in the All-Catholic League, where he is a member of the school's Football Hall of Fame. John attended the University of Pennsylvania where he was a three-year letterman for the Quakers football team, solidifying his position as a starting defensive back, and would graduate with a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature in 1966. Following his graduation, John served in the United States Marine Corps, attending military training in Quantico, Virginia, and was commissioned a second lieutenant in 1967, where he served as part of the 3rd Marine Division during the Vietnam War. Following his military service, John returned to university, earning a master's degree in business administration from Pennsylvania State University in 1972. Prior to acting, John worked in the advertising industry for nearly two decades, including roles at SSC and B Advertising and Norman Craig and Cummel. John was also one of the first employees at the fledgling TBWA firm when it opened its New York office in 1977. During his tenure at TBWA, John held a number of roles, including Executive Vice President, Head of Business Development, and was also responsible for a new business program which led to the firm winning the Agency of the Year Award from Adweek in 1990. Pivoting his advertising experience into the acting world, John first appeared in a commercial for AT&T in 1991, as well as landing a minor role in Law and Order, while in 1992 he landed his first recurring role, playing the part of Dobson in Loving. 1995 turned into a breakout year for John, with credits on TV for appearances on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, New York News, and Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, while he also earned his first film credits with roles in Unknown Taboo, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Stonewall, which also featured Oz alumni Louis Guzman, and The Journey of August King. In 1996, John lent his voice to the movie Beavers and Butthead to America, while in 1997 he appeared in Copland and Fool's Paradise, while on TV he appeared in Law and Order for a second time, playing a different role, as well as on New York Undercover. In 1998, John would appear for a third time in a third different role on Law and Order, while on film he appeared in Mercury Rising and Claire Doolan. In 1999, John made his first appearance on ER, playing the recurring role of Dr. Carl Derard, as well as making appearances in NYPD Blue. In 2000, John would make an uncredited appearance during the second season of The Sopranos, as well as appearing in the film The Opponent, a film which also featured Oz alumni Harry O'Reilly. Also in 2000, John would earn credits on TV for roles in The Practice, Martial Law and Law and Order Special Victims Unit, before appearing here on Oz. So the Colonel which I realise makes it sound like he runs the local branch of KFC, is convicted of rape and assault, and sentenced to 15 years, up for parole and seven. We see him down at receiving and discharge, where Murphy introduces him to Beecher, who's been assigned as the Colonel's MC sponsor. Beecher greets the Colonel, but it's not reciprocated as the Colonel just asks which way to go, and Murphy leads him off to MC. 
Beecher doesn't seem too surprised at the Colonel's actions here. He knows already that things are not going to work out between them. In their pod, the Colonel is meticulously laying his bed, presumably having had it beaten into him after years of military service, while Beecher is sat taking a shit. He mentions about hearing the Colonel's crime on the news, specifically mentioning about the rape taking place at a military convention. The Colonel... You know what, I'm stopping this military bullshit right now. There's no way I can keep this up. Edward says that he's been in the Marines since he was 16 years old, and has lived by its code of ethics. One night, however, he failed that code, and for that he is being properly punished. So Edward is actually admitting that what he did was wrong, and that he deserves to be in prison. A welcome change from the remorseless bunch that we usually see. As to why he's ended up in Oz and not military prison, I can only assume that is down to his crime having taken place in what seemed to be a hotel as part of this military convention, rather than having occurred at a military base or something like that. Beecher says that Edward might not feel the same after a few days in Oz, raising from the toilet and we get a very clear shot of Lee Tergerson's penis taking up a good portion of the screen, as Edward says that he's used to the company of men and that being used to a strict regime means that he won't have trouble adapting, as a fight breaks out in the common room with two inmates hitting the pot of glass, which startles Edward. Beecher notices that and leaves with a very, yeah, whatever you say, mate, as we then go to one of Sister Pete's drug counselling sessions, where she's asking Edward what he likes to be called, whether that's Ed, Edward, or Eddie. Edward, having dug out his best green army sweater, says that he prefers to be called Colonel, which gets a sarcastic salute from Ryan. Like I said a minute ago, I'm not sticking with that military nonsense, but Sister Pete goes along with it and asks for him to tell the group about his addiction. Edward plays down the use of the term addiction, saying that he doesn't drink often, Pete saying that she understands that, but also asks Edward about what happens when he drinks too much, Edward saying that this one time he lost control, and it won't happen again. Edward does this thing whereby he turns his head to answer Pete, then turns back so that he's facing straight forward. It's very, sir, yes sir, from the military man. Which you would expect, but I do actually like it as a character trait. Beecher chimes in, saying that it's easy to say that you won't do something, but harder to do. Beecher himself being a former alcoholic and heroin addict. As Edward says that for a weak man, then yes it is which gets a bunch of looks from the other members of the group, a mixture of, hey, fucking hell, Beecher's gonna go off on him here, while the others are like, get a load of this guy, as Beecher admits that he was weak on more than one occasion, and that perhaps he still is, referring to himself as a weakling, but at least he has the balls to admit it. Pete tells Beecher that that's enough, and luckily before things can escalate further, the bell rings, which ends the session much like how a school lesson would. Pete saying that she'll see everyone next week. But Beecher and Edward have a long stare at each other, so it seems we're off to the races with these two being enemies. Cut to M-City, where it's time for another round of Up Your Ante! With reigning champion Not That John Carpenter playing for $100,000, a mere tenth of what he won back in his Who Wants To Be A Millionaire days. Helping Not That John Carpenter through today's show is Grant Shoud, who we're told plays Miles Silverberg on Murphy Brown, but I haven't got a fucking clue who he is. Murphy Brown is a show that I've heard of through being referenced on other shows, but it's something that I've never seen before. It did run for 10 seasons originally between 1988 and 1998, and was revived in 2018 for a single 13-episode season, 
So it clearly was a success on some level, but I'm not familiar with it at all. You can probably find it streaming somewhere these days, but I have no recollection of even seeing it on UK TV when it first aired. It does get Burr's endorsement though, he thinks it's a funny show, as Ryan says that he loves Candice Bergen's tits. Morales joins the conversation saying that the other girl was cute, Chico asking if he means Lily Tomlin, which just seems to confuse Morales, so I'm glad I'm not the only one who isn't sure what Chico's on about. Today's question then, for $100,000, what country has the most number of people who speak English? Cyril shouts out that he thinks it's America, while Chucky condescendingly tells him that it's England, calling him a dummy in the process. Logical thinking I suppose from Chucky there, but with a population of just under 56 million, and even if every one of those people in that population spoke English, England wouldn't even come close. America has around four times as many English speakers compared to England based purely on population size alone, so if anyone's the dummy here, it's you Chucky. Not that John Carpenter rightly assumes that it can't be so straightforward as to be the US. While Grant's clue, Redbook gave this country a rave review, leads Beecher, who probably knew the answer already, to answer that it's China, as Jaya pulls a Deadpool looking directly into the camera saying that he didn't know that. No idea how Redbook ties into the answer other than it having the word red in it, but not that John Carpenter says that he's a big believer in fake TV newsmen, which I assume is something to do with Grant Schaud as Miles Silverberg, and says that he has to go with China. I mean, there are plenty of other countries that he could have gone with that have connections to red. Canada, of course, Morocco, Trinidad. But China's flag is, of course, predominantly red, aside from the five yellow stars. It's declared that that is the correct answer, and at the time broadcast that may have been true, but there seems to be conflicting information on how many Chinese people can actually speak English in the modern era. When Hong Kong was under British rule, English will have been taught in schools, which will have brought the number up across a number of generations. However, that number has since decreased in the years after Hong Kong came back under Chinese rule in 1997. Some sources have the number of people that speak English as either a first or an additional language as high as 400 million, eclipsing the total US population by over 70 million, while others have it as low as 20 million, or less than 2% of the Chinese population. Chucky seems put out that Beecher always gets the answers correct, while Rebido says that maybe Beecher should go on the show, Beecher sarcastically introducing himself and saying that he's in prison for killing a child before he leaves. I see what Rebido was trying to do there, just trying to lift Beecher somewhat. He mentioned earlier about knowing that Beecher misses Keller, but sometimes things are perhaps a bit better being left unsaid. Cut to Pete's office where Beecher is working when Pete enters with Catherine McLean, a lawyer with the Alliance for Prisoners' Rights, who is played by Sandra Papura. Making her acting debut on the theatre stage, Sandra appeared in Prom Queens Unchained in 1991, while in 1994 she made her Broadway debut appearing in Greece at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre. Moving into TV acting in 1995, Sandra appeared in Misery Loves Company, Maybe This Time, and Caroline in the City, while in 1996 she made a film debut appearing in Toad Warrior, which currently holds a whopping 1.8 on IMDb, and is probably as bad as its title sounds. Recovering from that obvious disaster in 1997, Sandra appeared in the mockumentary Swimsuit the Movie, as well as My Effing John and Sunsplit, as well as appearing in one episode of NYPD Blue. 
Appearing in an episode of Party of Five in 1998, Sandra landed her first recurring role that same year, appearing as Liz LaBella for eight episodes of DeResta. In 1998, Sandra appeared as Carla DeVito in the TV movie Meatloaf to Hell and Back, as well as appearing in Bull on TNT, which was cancelled after only airing eight of its planned 20 episodes. Also in 2000, Sandra would return to NYPD Blue during the show's seventh season, playing a different role, as well as appearing in the film Atlantis Falling, before appearing here on Oz. So Pete tells Beecher that Sandra has something to discuss with him, and they all take a seat to discuss Beecher's upcoming parole. Beecher saying that he was aware of having to serve four years as a minimum, but he'd figured that with everything that's gone on since coming to Oz, the likelihood of him being granted parole are pretty much non-existent. Catherine admits that Beecher might be right, but having reviewed his case, she feels that there may be some extenuating circumstances, those being the death of Genevieve and Gary, as well as Holly's genuine need for Beecher in her life. She also mentions that Beecher's behaviour over the last six months has improved, Pete and Gloria seemingly having put in commendations for him, and that taking all those things into account, the parole board may look kindly on Beecher after all. When Catherine mentions about Beecher's behaviour having improved, Pete does seem to give a bit of a look, but she might not completely agree with that. She mentioned last episode when Keller was being transported about how only he knew the whole truth. So perhaps she has some suspicions about Beecher's behaviour and how it relates to Keller. But she has still given Beecher a commendation, indicative perhaps of Beecher's release so that he can be with his daughter of being for the greater good. Beecher is at a loss for words. Clearly he'd got it into his head that he wasn't leaving Oz anytime soon. But hearing those words come out of Catherine's mouth, hearing that he might go free, brings Beecher to the brink of tears. But he assures Pete that he's okay, and asks what he has to do, which is just give Catherine permission to set the wheels in motion, and in the meantime keep out of trouble, a kiss of death if ever there was one. Back in M-City at night time, Edward is having a shave and mentions that he's heard that Beecher is, and I'm only going to use the word here because it's the one that said, a faggot. I know I said it earlier in the Clayton scene, but again, I only said it because that's the word that's used. Beecher is laying on his bunk reading a copy of Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, a novel which deals not only with issues around science and technology, but also the purpose of religion, something which Beecher has questioned throughout his time in Oz, and he asks Edward what's it to him if he is or not, Edward saying that he doesn't want Beecher getting any ideas once the lights go out, because of course that's how homosexuality works, isn't it, you knuckle-dragging gobshite. Beecher tells him, trust me, Colonel, I'm never going to be that horny, as Edward then goes on a tirade about how gay people again using the F-word, are ruining the military, Edward seemingly not being a fan of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, a policy reform introduced to the Defence Authorisation Act in November 1993. Beecher says that he agrees, and that the military should stay the way it's always been, that being a bunch of redneck he-men who murder children and rape women. Edward, with his icy stare, asks if Beecher is making a joke of him, and I'll admit that John Derman is a very commanding presence but Beecher says that Edward is doing a good enough job of that himself, and gives Edward a little wink and a smile, which is probably his biggest mistake here, as Edward grabs Beecher and yanks him off his bunk, one-handed as well, might I add, so Beecher may have gotten a bit more than he bargained for here. The fight doesn't last long, though, as Beecher hits Edward with a right good whack square in the nuts, sending Edward fetal on the ground as guards come in to break it up and take Beecher away. 
Beta realises straight away that he's messed up, fearing that this skirmish may jeopardise his apparent good behaviour record leading into his parole hearing. And as he's led to the M-City cage, he is flailing around trying to explain himself. And once placed in, he goes absolutely apeshit, kicking a bucket of what I hope was water and throwing a stool around. Ending Act 3 with a string of curse words, and a quick heads up that this clip does feature that slur from Edward. I hear you're a faggot. Whether I am or not, what's it to you? Lights go out, I don't want you getting any ideas. Trust me, Colonel, I'm never going to get that horny. As long as we understand each other. Fucking faggots are ruining the military. Don't ask, don't tell my ass. I agree. You know, I think the military should stay the way it's always been. Bunch of redneck he-men who murder children and rape women. You making a joke of me? Seems like you're doing a pretty good job on your own. Wait, fuck, no! Gosh! Wait, no, 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 fucking, you don't understand. Wait, look, I'm sorry. Will you just fucking let me explain? Fuck! gets underway with Augustus describing Fahrenheit and Celsius, the two ways of measuring temperature. While the rest of the world uses Celsius, the good old US of A is stuck with Fahrenheit. Which, yeah, if anyone knows why that is, please do let me know. Augustus even says, as he throws a couple of snowballs at us, that Americans can't seem to accept that zero degrees is actually warmer than we think. And to be honest, it just doesn't make any sense to me either. How can 0 degrees Celsius be 32 degrees Fahrenheit? How can 32 of something be nothing of something at the same time? Cut to Sister Pete's office where she is meeting with Vehu, and the vision of 6 foot 7 Vehu sitting in that chair is hilarious. It's like he's sitting in a child's seat. Pete asks him about why he was sent to Oz, Vehu saying that you've got the file right there, just take a look at it. But Pete asks him about not wanting to say the words which Vehu eventually does, saying that it was for assault. Pete asks him what else, but Vehu calls all of this bullshit, as Pete says that it's not easy to actually verbalise what he did, which he says is a good thing, as it shows that Vehu isn't proud of what he did, which Vehu protests at, saying that he didn't do what he was accused of, and that he didn't try and rape that woman, but that she came on willingly. Much like the conclusion to a drug counselling session, the bell rings to bring this meeting to a close, we always seem to be joining these things right at the end, as Pete says that she'll schedule another appointment for tomorrow, despite Vehu telling her that these sessions aren't helping him. Pete basically tells him, Tough shit, mate. They're helping me, and I've got quotas to fill, otherwise I don't get paid. Pete is always great when she takes no shit from the inmates. Just before Vehu leaves, she mentions about having him drug tested prior to him going before the parole board and that his tests came out clean and asks whether or not she needs to have him tested again. Vehu tells her no, which Pete says she believes, at least for now, as Vehu heads off to the cafeteria to moan to Bear about the lack of a buzz that he's been getting from his tits lately, saying that they've been cut with something. Poet tells Vehu in no uncertain terms, but the problem isn't with the product, but with Vehu himself, 
Bear reckoning that Verhue's been snorting so much drugs lately, and combined with the size of Verhue's body, that he's built himself a tolerance. Poet chiming in that at least Verhue's tolerant about something. We mentioned a while back now when Leo was having himself a few drinks about how alcohol can affect people differently based on factors such as height and weight, and drugs that come in substance form are no different to that. A tolerance is different to a drug dependency or addiction, that's not necessarily what Verhue has in this case. What he's developed is what's known as a pharmacodynamic tolerance, whereby repeated use of whatever it is that he's been taking, coupled with being such a large individual, means that the drug's effects are no longer kicking in the same way as they once did by the time they make their way through his entire body. Verhue asks for more tits, where if he were to take a higher dosage, would he actually feel effects more like what he was hoping to? But Burr says that Verhue will end up killing himself, and with a little help from Augustus says that Verhue needs to find a better way to ingest his drugs, and he pulls a syringe from his shirt pocket and passes it off to Verhue. So, quick question here. If Verhue didn't come looking for Burr to complain about the drugs, does this mean that Burr just walks around Oz all day with a syringe in his shirt pocket? That can't possibly be a good idea. Not just in case there were a random shakedown, but what if Burr gets into a fight and ends up stabbing himself with it? There's all sorts that could go wrong with this. He tells Verhu to be careful where he injects as he doesn't want to leave any visible marks. Verhu asks about injecting it into his tongue, which we saw Jazz do to Ralph back when he killed him in Series 4A, but Burr suggests doing it behind the knee, as it would be easier to hide than if you did it in the more traditional place of the inside elbow. Cut to lights out where we see Verhu burning his heroin on a metal spoon. Not sure where he's got that from exactly, but I'm sure there's someone who can arrange these kind of things for a price, and then trying to find a spot behind his knee using a little hand mirror. Again, probably acquired from someone for a small fee. It can't be Shirley's mirror, as I'm pretty sure that Moses still has that broken one down on death row. Before he takes his drugs, though, he reminisces about his name being called in the NBA. As we hear, Number 17, Jackson Vahue! And we also see a pretty blurry shot of him making a dunk. What we learn from this little sequence, though, despite the blurry attempt to cover it up, is that Jackson Vahue quite clearly plays for the Los Angeles Lakers as this is quite blatantly just Rick Fox's Lakers uniform, where he did play number 17, only with Verhue put in place of his actual surname. We were talking earlier on about legal clearances and all that kind of stuff, and I've no idea how the show got away with this, as despite trying to make it as blurry as possible, this is so clearly the golden purple of the Lakers uniform, one of the most famous colour combinations in the sporting world. It's up there with the silver and royal blue of the Dallas Cowboys, the all-black of New Zealand rugby, the red and yellow of Hulkamania. You could show those colours to someone who's never watched basketball in their lives, and I bet you they would know that they belong to the LA Lakers. Everyone recognises it. Surely the costume department could have knocked up a generic basketball uniform for this shot, and it is just a couple of shots. How did we end up in a situation where Rick Fox had to bring his own Lakers uniform to the set? It just boggles the mind. We don't actually see Verhue inject into his knee, so whether he actually did or not is open to interpretation. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. As we dissolve to Verhue speaking at a drug counselling session, telling the group that as a basketball player his legs are what made him, and that he knows that he's never going to play another pro game, so what does it matter? But he says that it does matter 
and that his legs took him out of the projects and allowed him to make something of himself, which is something that he never wants to forget, and that he's proud of his legs. So the implication is that he didn't actually end up injecting himself. I actually thought that Rick Fox was quite good here delivering this show speech. You gotta remember he had minimal acting experience prior to joining the show, and was still starting more or less every game for the Lakers in the NBA season at this time. It's not like he had loads of free time to hone his acting skills. So well done, Rick Fox. Cut to the crime flashback of Carlton Tug Daniels, the only crime flashback that actually occurs within Oz itself, as far as I can remember, as we see a flashback of him plunging a knife into Supreme's stomach from the last episode. I touched upon it briefly last time, but Tug Daniels is played by rap superstar Method Man. Born March 2nd, 1971, Method Man, real name Clifford Smith Jr., was born in Hempstead on Long Island dividing his upbringing between living there with his father and with his mother in Park Hill. Method attended New Drop High School where he became friends with fellow rapper Remedy and was also a keen lacrosse player. As a key member of the Wu-Tang Clan in its early years, Method was one of only two members to get a solo song on the collective's debut album and was the first member of the group to release a solo album, 1994's critically acclaimed title. Remaining in music throughout much of the mid-90s, including collaborating with Shaquille O'Neal on the then-Orlando Magic Center's second album, Shaq Fu The Return, Method earned his first acting credits in 1997, appearing in the films 187 and Copland. That same year also saw the release of Wu-Tang Clan's second album, Wu-Tang Forever, shifting over 2 million copies worldwide. In 1998, along with appearing in the film Belly with fellow rappers Nas and DMX, Method released his second solo album, Title 2000 Judgment Day, as well as collaborating with his close friend Redman on the album Blackout in 1999, the album quickly achieving platinum status, leading to the pair becoming household names, helped by the pair appearing in a commercial for Rightguard. That same year, Method became known to a generation of metal fans through his collaboration with Limp Bizkit, appearing on End Together Now, the third single from the group's significant other album, and if truth be told, is most likely where I first heard of him. Making his TV debut in 2000, appearing in the pilot for the TV series Wonderland, Method also appeared in the film Bariqua's Bond. Also in 2000, Method would perform on the track Know Your Role on the WWF Aggression album, as well as performing on Wu-Tang Clan's third album, The W, before appearing here on Oz. So Tug has been convicted of attempted murder in the first degree, and has been sentenced to 28 years, up for parole in 14. And we go to M-City where he's joined up with the other homeboys, where Burr is telling them, and Jaya, who's joined them at the table for some reason, that the time for action has arrived. He orders Tug to waste Chucky as Jaya tells him that he wants Morales, Jaya accepting the challenge set by Gonjin last episode, telling Augustus that he made a promise to avenge Bian's death when Augustus questions him about it. Burr tells Augustus that he wants him to get word to Omar in the hospital that he's the one to finish off Supreme. We see each man stare off with their relevant target, as well as Poet motioning to Chica, so presumably that's who Poet has been assigned to kill. Just after that as well, there's some no-name inmate a couple of people back from Chico who is trying his best to look menacing, but he's wearing a hairnet which instantly dismisses any tough guy credentials he might have. If he was working in the kitchen, it would have made sense as to why he's wearing one, but he isn't, so he just looks fucking stupid. Augustus meets up with Burr at lunch with some questions about what his plans are. 
Hey, Bert. Listen, I've been thinking about this little war we activate. A lot of good men will die. A lot of them gonna die in any case. But assuming you win, what you gonna gain? The hacks will lock down this whole prison. Can't keep the lid on it forever. Warden finds out you're the ringleader, he gonna send you to solitary. Augustus, what the fuck's your problem? You were my father's best friend, right? You and him went off to Vietnam together, you came back alone. And since then, I have followed you. I have done your bidding, never questioned him, right? So now you got questions. When I was 10 years old, I wanted a real job. You wanted a paper route. Wait, instead, you had me selling smack. Now you gotta learn the business. Why? Why do I need to learn how to sell drugs? Because we didn't have any other options back then. Let me tell you something, I ain't gonna apologize for who I am or what I've done, right? Do I wish things had been better? Sure. Do I wish we'd been born in one of them fancy mansions up there on Kellogg Boulevard? Sure. But I don't hope and I don't dream. I take a shit in this world. I see reality and I make the best of it. You ain't got to tell me about reality. I live in Oz. I live in this chair. And I wouldn't be here if you let me have the goddamn motherfucking paper route. Brilliant little scene this one. Harold and Anthony are both on top form here. I mentioned a while back about how Augustus is the down-to-earth moral conscience of the show. And we get a really good example of that here as well as a good amount of backstory that hasn't really been expanded on before, only mentioned in passing. He makes it clear to Burr about how he's never questioned him before, and how he's been incredibly loyal to him over the years, and while I'm sure there are some in Oz that he probably wouldn't mind seeing the back of, he isn't prepared to have innocent people get caught up in Burr's crosshairs. This is why Augustus, and only Augustus as the narrator of the show, works because he is so goddamn likeable and relatable. All he ever wanted was to deliver newspapers, but instead he was essentially groomed into being a criminal from a very young age. At his core, though, he is a good person, but one that has made some poor choices in his life, something which we can all associate with. And Anthony is great in this scene too. Burr has built up a wall completely and won't be stopped by anyone, not even the person that has been with him for so many years. I've been saying throughout the second half of this series about how no one has truly assumed control of M-City since Adebisi's death, thereby not allowing the show to have one standout villain. Morales and Chucky have had a partnership for some time now, and I've no doubt that one would turn on the other eventually, that's just the kind of people that we're dealing with. But Burr is about to upset the apple cart by trying to assume power not only for himself, but by putting the homeboys back at the top of the hierarchy in MC. Having Jaya committed to killing Morales is a good touch too, in that it not only keeps Burr hands clean should that murder take place, at least of that one, but it also provides him with an ally. The Asian population in Oz is seemingly very small, but that shouldn't be a reason for Burr to exclude them if they prove to be of use on occasion. The scene at the table illustrated that quite well. You've got Burr commanding his minions in Tug and Poet, 
and to a lesser extent Augustus, who is sort of flirting between being a member of the homeboys while still remaining a part of the others. But you've also got four other homeboy soldiers surrounding Bear. Jaya, however, is the sole representative of the Asian inmates at this meeting. That could be because he's new to Oz and hasn't yet rallied his troops, but even then the Asian population has always been underrepresented. When the inmates returned to M-City at the start of Series 2 following the riot, there wasn't an Asian group mentioned amongst the other groups under the new regime. It could also be a case of any other Asian inmates might be housed in Unit B, and that Jaya is pretty much on his lonesome in M-City, so it would be in his interest to align himself, and by proxy the other Asians, with a strong group. Over in the showers, Augustus is the one to seek Saeed's counsel this time explaining about how Burr is like a father to him. Saeed, who's finishing up his shower, tells Augustus that there comes a time for every son to leave his father's house and make his own way, but Augustus is still torn, feeling as though he's betraying Burr. Saeed asks if Augustus believes what Burr is instigating to be wrong, Augustus telling him that for the most part, yes, with Saeed following up by asking if many will suffer as a result, Augustus again telling him yes. Saeed admits that he's always admired Augustus because he's his own man, and that he's always kept his sense of decency and honour, something which he says can be hard to do in a place like ours. Augustus asks what good that does, with Saeed telling him that he gets to sleep through the night. Another good little scene this one, and a rare one between Saeed and Augustus, can't actually remember the last time they had a scene together. Of course you had Saeed representing Augustus at his hearing back in series 2, something which actually caused a bit of a rift between the two, which would explain them being kept apart. But we also saw Augustus go to Saeed to seek his counsel about what to do about Malcolm Coyle admitting to murder, so this is probably the first real interaction they've had since that point back in Series 3. They might have had some minor interactions since then, but this is the first scene just between those two that I can remember since then. Some more full frontal male nudity here as well, in what I think is the first time that we've seen Eamon Walker's penis on the show. Saeed has been to the hall before, but without going and inspecting it frame by frame, I don't think you actually saw him fully on display like you do here. So yeah, Eamon and Lee both getting the dicks out in this episode, which I think means that the majority of the main cast of inmates have now been naked at one point or another. Later in the day, Murphy is making his way down the steps in M-City, the buzzer sounding which makes him check his watch. Presumably he's due to knock off any moment now. But Augustus tells him that he needs to talk with him, and that he needs to do so privately. We get a quick couple of shots of the sort gearing up before heading to the hospital where Omar is bugging out a bit and asking Supreme for a sip of water. Supreme telling him that he ain't no nurse and to get his own. Omar continues to do what he does best being an annoying prick and continuing to ask for some water. Supreme getting up to get some because it's just easier, and it might get Omar to shut the hell up. We then cut to the gym, where Mario Seggio drains a three-pointer from downtown on the basketball court. Seriously, he nails that shot. Nothing but net on it. A Jaya poet tug and a number of other hired goons step out for a fight. Back in the hospital, Supreme has to actually put the straw in Omar's drink, as with Omar being in a state of detox, he's been placed in the hand restraints attached to his bed. Something which he can apparently just slip straight out of, as he just pops his right hand out of there, and grabs a knife that's been placed next to him. Over on the court, Chucky goes for a shot, but is blocked by Morales, good defensive work from Morales there, as the ball rolls over to Jaya, 
who stabs the ball with a shank, signifying that, oh, it's on, as we go back to the hospital again where Omar tries to stab Supreme. But this time Supreme is ready, and able to fight off Omar's attack. We go back to the court once again where it looks like things are about to explode, but the sort run in and separate the two groups. As Tug is pressed up against the fence, he shouts that today is Judgment Day, as we see Morales and Zaya continue to stare each other down. We go back to the hospital once again where the sort run in to break up the fight between Omar and Supreme, with one of the sort pressing Omar down on the bed underneath his plastic shield, which got a good laugh out of me, I must admit. So this little section here is similar to when we've had two different conversations going on, usually involving McManus talking with Murphy while the other is between whichever two inmates they're currently at loggerheads with. Whereas this time we've got two different fights going on. So it was nice to see that device come back and that it had something of a twist to the last time we saw it used. Unsurprisingly, two concurrent fights involving weapons has led to the prison being placed in lockdown. Burr looks surprised at this development. Clearly he was expecting things to go down differently. Although even if his troops had carried out their orders, the prison would have still likely been placed in lockdown as a result. Presumably he wasn't expecting it to happen so soon though, as he more or less straight away realises that something is wrong and looks in Augustus' direction. Augustus taking a big breath before heading back to his pod as we fade to black. I'd probably say that this segment was the best part of the show so far in that it had a little bit of everything. You had Bear looking to seize control, Augustus in two minds about whether to support him with his plan or not, you had two separate wild fights, there was a little bit of humour in there, but the best part about it was the bit of backstory with regards to Augustus and Burr's past, and Augustus confronting Burr about using him to do what had to be done in order to survive back then. It reaffirmed Augustus' stance as the show's moral compass, which was backed up by Saeed's admitting his admiration for Augustus, and Augustus going to Murphy to get things shut down. This isn't the first time that Augustus has put himself in a situation where someone could seek retaliation, he has his beef with Verhu for essentially sabotaging Verhu's parole, as well as the Malcolm Coyle situation from Series 3 that I mentioned a few moments ago. And deep down, he knows that retaliation is a likely outcome, but that's a risk he seems willing to take because he knows that going to Murphy was the right thing to do. Burr seeking to get Chucky and Morales out of the way is one thing, but it's the senseless additional deaths that come with trying to kill those two that Augustus is most concerned with and it's hard not to get behind someone seeking to limit the bloodshed to being as low as possible. We stay with Augustus as the next segment starts, with him telling us about his love for Jack London books, such as Call of the Wild from 1903 and White Fang from 1906. I don't want to put Jack London over too much, because he seems to have some very questionable views on race, especially in relation to the Asian community. Augustus remembers one particular London story about a man in Alaska losing his dog team, and to make matters worse, he also had a broken leg. Realising that he was going to freeze to death, the man buries himself in the snow and simply goes to sleep, which Augustus describes as being terrifying yet beautiful, and that the acceptance of one's fate is the way that any man should die. Augustus doesn't mention specifically which story of London's that is, and without going through London's vast catalogue of work, I can only make a guess that it's a loose reference to the 1908 version of the short story To Build a Fire, in which an explorer ventures into Canada's Yukon Territory and fails to heed the warnings of the extreme cold, succumbing to the harsh conditions by freezing to death once his fire is doused and he's unable to light it again. 
What can best be described as a square wipe takes us out of Augustus' box and brings us to death row, where Leo is paying a visit to William Giles. Leo is going through the procedure of finding out how Giles wants to die, saying that they're a month out from the date set by the court. Giles says that he wants to die old, and implies that he wants to go in his sleep, but unfortunately that isn't an option, which Leo tells him in no uncertain terms. Giles then asks, as only he can, to see Sister P, and Leo does say that he'll ask her to visit before heading off. Giles then begins to cry, realisation setting in that he only has a month left on Earth, as Moses yells across to him to stop crying, saying that it's going to bring him down, which, fuck off Moses, don't be a dick. I'm far from Giles' biggest fan, but if he wants to cry, let him have a cry. Leo is good to his word in getting Pete to visit with Giles, but it happens in her office rather than her going down to death row and she explains the different options available to Giles in terms of how he can die. We only actually hear her mention one method, that being the gas chamber, which we've mentioned before in the case of Walter Legrand's 1999 execution in Arizona, and a method which has never been used in New York State previously. As Pete gives the exact details of what would happen should Giles choose to be executed that way, which she struggles to do and which links back to her having such a staunch anti-capital punishment stance, Giles asks about being stoned. Pete tells him that she isn't sure if the gas would make him high, which is a beautifully naive moment from Pete, but Giles is meaning stoned in the biblical sense, in that he quite literally wants to be stoned to death, and mentions Shirley Jackson, a reference to the American novelist and her book The Lottery, first published in 1948. Of course, the book does not contain any hints on how to actually win the lottery, it's rather a tale of conformity gone mad, and depicts an annual lottery in which a small, often isolated American community will stage a ritualistic sacrifice by stoning a member of the community to death. And if you think that sounds very similar to the plot of The Hunger Games, you'd be right in thinking that, as Suzanne Collins pretty much ripped it off. That and Battle Royale. While associated with biblical times, stoning to death is still around today. As of 2010, it was still practiced as a form of capital punishment in Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, Indonesia and Iran, as well as Muslim states of northern Nigeria. The practice was introduced to Brunei in 2019, and in 2021 was made legal in Afghanistan following the country's takeover by the Taliban, although the method had still been practiced in years prior in lawless areas of the country. Over in the visiting room, Moses is meeting with his lawyer Dawn, back for the first time since Series 4, Episode 7. She tells Moses that there is a very good chance that he's looking at another death sentence, because one just isn't enough apparently. Gotta make sure that he's good and dead, as Moses says that he'll just appeal that one too. It isn't that simple though, as apparently Congress has placed a limitation on death row appeals, meaning that Moses is likely to be executed, as Dawn puts it, for one or both of these crimes, and that he needs to prepare for what might come next. Surely, if you're executed for one of them, then you're executed for the other by default. This seems a very odd way of doing things. Moses tells her that he hasn't thought through that part of the situation yet, and that he's never given up hope. Saying that he's a man of principles, Moses believes deep down in the bottom of his soul that a man with principles will be exonerated. Dawn says that having hope is a good thing, but maybe, just in case best to get your house in order and make some plans, just in case you do end up being put to death. Back on death row, Leo informs Giles that the state attorney general has rejected his request to be stoned to death, 
probably to the surprise of absolutely no one. But Giles protests, saying, sort of, that it's the law and his right to choose how he dies. Pete tells him that an anti-death penalty group has decided to take up Giles' cause, suing the state on Giles' behalf. That bit of info gets the attention of Moses, as does Leo saying that the mess that Giles has caused will likely drag out for decades, and he storms off in a huff. He's pissed off that Giles of all people has got one over on him, and you can tell that it's eating at him inside. Pete gives Giles a thumbs up, almost as if to say, way to go, kid, as an unimpressed Lepresti calls for lights out, and Moses congratulates Giles to close the scene. Giles. Giles. This whole time I thought you were a damn idiot talking in flashcards, but now I see you're a fucking genius. No, genius, no. Yes, genius, yes. You were supposed to die in two weeks, all your appeals dried up. But by asking to be stoned to death, you threw a wrench in the works. Everybody's suing everybody. Like the warden says, this could take years to sort out. Die, old, sleep. Ah, Giles, you are an inspiration to us all, brother. Over in the visiting room with the phones, Moses is asked to speak with Saeed, the latest person to seek his counsel this episode. Saeed admits that he's curious as to why Moses is asked to see him, as they have no previous history. Moses telling Saeed that he's just finished reading his book which he describes as being awesome. He especially liked the section about Jefferson Keane, from his time on death row, to giving his sister one of his kidneys, something which Moses says really got to him. Saeed informs him that he still hears from Grace, Keane's sister, and that she's very happy and healthy. Feeling inspired by Keane's story, Moses says that he wants to do the same thing by giving away his organs when he dies. He says, however, that he wants to meet the people that are going to benefit from receiving his organs, something which Saeed says he doesn't think is allowed. I couldn't find anything that specifically said that a person couldn't meet their organ donor, although it is something that would have to be agreed to in advance and would also likely involve a doctor for each person signing off on it. With Moses being a death row inmate, it's more likely the ethical issue that would prevent such a meeting from taking place. But if Moses and whoever was receiving whatever organ he was donating were to agree to the meeting, then there is a possibility it could happen, although I would imagine it's rare that it ever actually does. Moses says that if anyone can make such a meeting happen, then Saeed is the one to do it, saying that he knows that he can, and that Saeed has power through faith. That seems to be enough to get Saeed to take the bait, as he says that he'll see what he can do for Moses. This scene, from a storyline point of view, makes sense that Saeed is meeting with Moses behind the glass for his own protection, but it allowed for the scene to play out with both men more or less in the scene constantly, even though only one of them is actually in the shot. So you've got Moses in the centre of the frame, but we still see Saeed and his expressions and reactions, and vice versa. When Saeed says that he isn't sure if meeting the recipients is allowed, the camera pans across to Moses' reflection where he again praises Saeed for having influence, rather than cutting back to Moses. He's acting as Saeed in a monologue, telling himself that he can do it. You're the one who can do it, Saeed. Power through faith. It's Saeed telling himself that he's the difference maker here. The other thing to take away from this is that Moses, having just witnessed Giles find a way to delay his execution, has figured out a way to delay his own demise by first off becoming an organ donor, 
but also by coming up with a specific condition that means that he has to remain alive. We'll see what the payoff to this is at the end of the series, but in a weird way you have to kind of admire Moses for the plan that he's hatched here. Anti-hero is a term that gets bandied around far too easily these days, but it's hard not to go, you know what, hats off to you there, that's actually pretty smart. This segment closes out with Giles looking very pleased with himself and enjoying tossing a small rock between his hands, as we then join Leroy, aka Salayu Dean, over by the laundry room talking with another inmate, telling him that he's stood in this position before, and that he knows the need to be a man, but that being a man isn't fueled by drugs or by using your fists, or even by banging your bitch, and that being a man begins with what's in your heart, as we pan up to the balcony where Saeed and Arif are watching on pleased with their protégé spreading the word of Islam. Arif tells Saeed that he's done a great job guiding Leroy, as we see the inmate remove his bandana, or do-rag or whatever you want to call it, as we then cut to the library where Robson, with Jazz and Max Sands in tow, meet up again with Leroy. Robson tells Leroy that he's a patient, tolerant man. Jazz, on the other hand, isn't, and says that they had a deal for Leroy to whack Saeed. Robson even paying 50% up front to get the ball rolling. But Saeed is still walking, and he says that Jazz feels as though time has run out on Leroy's long-term plan to get close to Saeed. As Jazz gets in Leroy's face, telling him tick-tock, he says that his name is no longer Leroy Tid, and that he goes by Salah Udine now, which gets a giggle out of Robson. He admits to saying that he would kill Saeed, but that he's changed his mind, which, if only it were that simple... Robson says that in order to change your mind, you need to have one to begin with, and that Leroy, which he makes a point of still calling him, has shit for brains. Which is fresh coming from Robson, considering his stance on things and with some of the nonsense that he's come out with over the years. He tells Leroy, which I'm going to continue the calling for continuity issues, that you don't back out on the Brotherhood, as Leroy attempts to leave, telling him assalamu alaikum. But Robson grabs him around the neck and tells him not to give him that quote-unquote Hocus Pocus bullshit. Luckily for Leroy, Officer Johnson enters the library, asking if Robson is looking for some jerk-off time in the hall, which is something I never want to picture happening in there ever again. I get that you have a lot of time to kill and you are just in there with your lad out, but having heard that, I'd hate to see what the hall looks like under a UV light. Robson tells him no as Johnson tells him the goose step is butt out of there. And I've taken a liking to Johnson here. He ain't taking any of Robson's bullshit, and he shows that he can dish it out as good as anyone. Good lad. Robson and his cronies leave, telling Leroy under his breath that this isn't over, as we cut to Saeed and Leroy working in receiving a discharge. Salah, you've seen trouble. My soul is heavy, Minister. So talk to me. I'm afraid. Afraid to speak the truth. Never be afraid of the truth, my brother. I lied to you. You see, when I first approached you saying I wanted to become a Muslim, I had vengeance in my heart because of what you did, killing Adabisi. But then the bliss of Allah replaced the vengeance. Now I'm a true believer. I knew the day that I embraced you that you were lying. You did? Mm -hmm. Then why? The ways of the Almighty are wondrous indeed. He brought us together at this time and this place so that we could learn from each other. You learn from me? Ah. That day I went to Adabisi and I swore my loyalty to him. 
Since his death, I have been struggling with my demons. Still do. But you've taught me the world has many possibilities. Royston and Hoyt want you dead. I know. What are we gonna do? As with everything else, we'll leave this in the hands of God. Over in Unit B, Robson is striking up a deal with Carl Jenkins to kill Saeed, telling him that if he doesn't get the job done, he'll feed him to the other inmates. Carl telling him that he'll do whatever Robson needs. I thought that we were done with introducing new characters for this episode, but right at the death here we get our first meeting with Carl Jenkins, played here by Joshua Harter. Born January 9th, 1979 in Huntington, West Virginia, Joshua attended the Dreyfus School of the Arts in West Palm Beach, Florida. Joshua's first TV acting credits came in 1996, where he appeared as Will in six episodes of The Mystery Files of Wendy Wu on Nickelodeon. In 1999, Joshua appeared in Law & Order during the show's ninth season, while in 2000 he had a minor role in Strangers with Candy. Also in 2000, Joshua would make his film debut, appearing as Lance in the film Swimming, before appearing here on Oz. Cut to the cafeteria, where the lunch line is snaking around similar to the line at a theme park, which, to the best of my knowledge, has never occurred on the show before, the reasons for which will become clear momentarily. Arif, Saeed and Leroy and a couple of other Muslim inmates are a few spaces ahead of Carl in the queue, but as they double back around the snaked walkway, Carl pulls a knife from his pocket. The others don't notice Carl brandishing the weapon, but Leroy does and he quickly moves in front of Saeed as Carl stabs forward with the blade. Obviously, this causes a massive ruckus in the lunch line, with everyone getting involved. Saeed attends to Leroy, who still has the blade in his chest, as the other Muslims fight back against the other inmates in the line, who for one reason or another have to get involved as Carl disappears under a sea of bodies in the melee. Later, back in M-City, Saeed is sat on the floor of his pod curled up as Arif arrives to deliver the news that Leroy, aka Salah Uddin, has passed away. Saeed immediately blames himself, saying that he killed Leroy just like he killed Adebisi, and says he might as well have had the knife in his own hand, describing his hands as having blood on them. Arif tries to talk to Saeed on a personal level, dropping the formality of calling him his imam and calling Saeed by his first name something which we very rarely see from Arif or any of the other Muslims, but Saeed tells him to say nothing and to leave him. Arif tries to tell Saeed that he can't blame himself, but Saeed tells him once again to leave him alone, saying that his demons need feeding. Arif actually looks terrified at hearing that. He's never seen that side of Saeed before, as Saeed lashes out at him to leave him alone, which Arif eventually does as it's probably for the best. Ravaged with guilt, Saeed is left in his pod alone crying as Augustus narrates about how people say that every snowflake is different, but asks how can we ever really be sure, as the law of averages dictates that two must have been similar at some point, and that snowflakes are not dissimilar to the inmates of Oz, as we close the episode.
Imam. Salah is dead. I killed him, you know. I killed him just like I killed Adam Bisi. I might as well have had the knife in my hand. In these bloody hands. Cream. No. Say nothing. But you can't blame myself. Me. Because my demons need freedom. say that every snowflake is different, but how can they really be sure? I mean, think about all the snowflakes that have fallen all over the world throughout Earth's history. Law of averages dictates that at least two of them had to be similar. Like human beings, like the men in Oz. Even if they start out unique, they end up the same. So there you go, Series 4, Episode 13, Blizzard of Oz 01. This is a bit of a weird one. With the way I write the podcast, I go through the episode taking note of who's new to the show, who might have died or been killed, is there anyone making a one-and-done appearance, and is there anyone who is leaving the show for any other reason. With the introduction of Carl Jenkins right at the end there, we had a total of six people join the show in this episode. And yes, I'm including Tug Daniels in that number as he only appeared very briefly last time. Despite having half a dozen people join the show, one person die, two others making their final appearance and another making a one and done, very little actually seemed to happen in this episode. And in my initial writing and research, I was actually quite down on this episode and quite close to calling it the weakest episode of the show to this point. There are things that are given very little time to breathe in this episode. Gloria is facing legal action that threatens her entire career, something which never gets mentioned again after the first 10 or 15 minutes. The O'Reillys get a new mum, which has never even been hinted at at any previous time on the show, and Beecher is faced with the possibility of his parole hearing going ahead after all, so long as he can stay out of trouble, only to wind up making a mess of things mere minutes later. Granted, what happened between him and Edward was, in some way, an act of self-defence, but he did also sort of bring it on himself by provoking Edward about being something of a Neanderthal. The look from Edward when Beecher was placed in the M-City cage could be hinting towards there being more heat between these two as things move forward, but with this first act of their story, Beecher has already placed his chances of being granted a successful parole in the balance. There isn't that build towards the House of Cards collapsing. It's already collapsed. So how are we meant to be invested in what's to come? because he's already blown his opportunity. A parole hearing taking place now would be a bit of a cop-out, because it basically means that Beecher having to stay out of trouble ultimately means very little if his parole hearing takes place anyway. And, spoiler alert, that is exactly what happens in a couple of episodes. But we'll talk more about that at another time. I mentioned last episode that I was looking forward to the budding war between Ray and Cloutier and who's the top god in Oz. We got a hint of that here, with Ray, for lack of a better word, recruiting Samuel into his flock while Cloutier continued to command his own stable. Then, a few minutes later, 
that animosity was all gone as the two of them came together, not only with each other, but with Saeed and the unnamed rabbi in the ecumenical gathering. It's just another thing that seems to have been thrown together quickly to fill time, and as a result culminates far too quickly and without a satisfactory conclusion. Having said all of that, I did find myself liking other segments when I went through the episode again, especially towards the back end of the episode. The inner conflict of Augustus not wanting to do wrong by Burr, a second father figure in his life, but taking the decision to stop Burr's plan in its tracks, knowing full well that doing so will alienate himself not only from the homeboys but especially from Burr, was a great example of why Augustus is such a popular character. The real highlight, or highlights as his appearances were peppered throughout the episode, were the ones involving Saeed. His admission to having such admiration for Augustus, the fact that Reyes confided in him and sought his counsel, hell, even jumping on the chance to help Moses. This was the most we've gotten out of Saeed for quite some time. The closing moments in which Leroy, having now adapted Islam as his faith and adopted the name Salah Uddin, confesses to having hatred towards Saeed for killing Adabizi before finding the way, that's giving Saeed, I suppose you could say, his purpose again. This being Oz, though, that feeling of content can only be allowed to last for as little as humanly possible, as Leroy sacrifices himself to save Saeed from Carl's attack, Saeed then blaming himself for having killed Leroy, the same as he did Adabizi. Of course, Saeed hasn't killed Leroy, it's an act of heroism that led to Leroy's demise, but this is what I've been wanting from Saeed ever since the death of Adabizi. I'm not meaning that I wanted to see him as a complete wreck and crying, Oh my god, I've killed a man, woe is me! But don't forget we're a number of months on from Adabizi's death now, which we know he did in self-defence, but Saeed has bottled those emotions up ever since that point in time and it's been simmering ever since, waiting to explode, which finally happens here in the wake of Leroy's death. There's a line from Sister Pete at the start of Series 2, back when Alva Case was interviewing people about what led to the riot, which could be applied here with what Saeed is going through. No, it's more than that. You deny a man his freedom, his family, his privacy, his dignity, then all he has left is time to simmer. And eventually, the simmer becomes a boil. Now of course, Pete is using that in reference to what led to the riot to occurring. It's not foreshadowing Saeed's reaction here. But from a psychiatric point of view, the logic is the same. Saeed has never dealt with how he feels after killing Adabizi. He has never processed what happened. He has clung onto these feelings for months. That could be because he does feel the guilt of having killed a man. But it's a different kind of guilt to what he feels for as he interprets it here, having killed Leroy. In Saeed's mind, two people are dead because of him, both because of what he sees as his actions, but he feels very differently about each of the killings. Now, had we had Saeed come to terms with Adabizi's death, or in some way managed to justify it to himself in some way other than it being self-defence, maybe we don't get this outpouring of emotion from him here, which ultimately takes away from the moment. But seeing Saeed at his darkest here, coming to terms with two very different types of guilt, this is one of the bleakest moments in the show's history, but it was also the best part of this episode by quite some way. Get the fuck out of my office. Just the one deleted scene to talk about for this episode, which sees us in the victim-offender interaction session between Schillinger and Beecher. Schillinger is talking about the birth of his new grandchild, 
saying that he's still in a bit of a daze as everything seemed to happen so fast. He mentions about how he wasn't there for the birth of either of his sons, as Pete asks if he got to hold the baby. But apparently there was all sorts of stuff to do with the placenta, and the paramedics having to take Carrie to Benchley Memorial, and that with a CEO grabbing Schillinger, he didn't get the chance to. As Beecher mentions that Schillinger still hasn't told them the sex of the baby, which we find out is a girl. An overjoyed Schillinger calling her the most perfect little girl on God's green earth. Through all of this joy and backslapping though, Pete makes sure that Schillinger understands that this is a new beginning. A second chance if you will. As Beecher asks who would have thought that with all the death they've seen in Oz, that there would finally be life. The scene closing with all of them taking a moment to contemplate that thought. We got that moment previously of Schillinger and Beecher shaking hands, and this scene seems to exist purely to reinforce that things are still okay between them right now. I suppose Beecher posing that philosophical question about the death and new life was alright, but other than that, not really much to talk about here, so the right calls cut this. With a death toll of one for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Leroy Tidd, aka Salah Dean, played by Jack C. Smith, and we also have a few other people leaving the show too. Post-Oz, Jack continued to act in minor roles on TV, with single episode credits for shows such as The Division, ER and CSI Miami, as well as appearing as the Invisible Man for one episode of American Masters. In 2013, Jack landed the recurring role of Rev Carter in The Choir, while in 2015 he appeared in the short film Lost in Time. In 2016, Jack appeared in the short film Watch This as well as one episode of Adaptable, while his most recent acting credit came in 2017 where he appeared in one episode of Marlon, the Marlon Wyans sitcom which was broadcast on NBC. Joining the Oz 1 and Dunn Club this episode are Edward James Highland playing the part of Jeffrey Seitz, and Grant Shoud who was helping out with today's Up Your Ante. Edward continues to work as an actor appearing mostly in minor roles on TV with credits for shows such as Law & Order, where he has appeared a number of times over a 13-year stretch, as well as Gossip Girl, Boardwalk Empire, and also earned recurring roles on Mr. Robot and Stop the Bleeding. Edward has also earned a number of film credits, including roles in The Happening, the Mark Wahlberg film where Marky Mark attempts to outrun The Wind, and which also features an appearance by Oz alumni Betty Buckley, as well as The Switch, Bridge of Spies, and A Rainy Day in New York. At the time of recording, Edward's most recent credit is listed as being for the recurring role of Judge Levy on Bull, which is broadcast on CBS. Also leaving the show after this episode are Moses' lawyer Dawn, played by Angela Bullock, and Lenore Hughes, played by Elaine R. Graham. Since leaving Oz, Angela Bullock appeared in a minor role in the film Death to Smoochie in 2002, as well as appearing on TV in Law & Order Criminal Intent and Third Watch that same year. In 2004, Angela appeared in one episode of The Sopranos during the show's fifth season, while between 2010 and 2011 she appeared in a recurring role in Desperate Housewives, playing the part of a prison guard. Along with appearances on shows including Californication, Dexter, Criminal Minds and Rizzolian Isles, Angela's most recent credits include the short film Unremarkable, while in 2022 she was credited as Libby Lewis in The Connors. After leaving Oz, Elaine R. Graham landed the recurring role of Penelope in 100 Censor Street where she appeared for six episodes, while in 2011 she appeared on TV in Unforgettable, as well as Smash in 2012. Between 2002 and 2015, Elaine appeared three times on Law & Order Special Victims Unit in a number of different roles, as well as appearing in The Detour and The Breaks in 2017. 
At the time of recording, Elaine's most recent credit is for the 2022 film Women of the Theatre New York, where she appeared as herself. The final person we have to say goodbye to this episode is the episode's director, Leslie Libman. Since directing on Oz, Leslie has directed for some of TV's most popular shows, including single episode credits for shows such as The Shield, Without a Trace, The Practice, The Wire, Entourage and Madam Secretary, as well as directing multiple episodes of shows such as Gideon's Crossing, The 4400, Flash Forward, The Vampire Diaries, as well as the show's spin-off The Originals, while in more recent years she has directed on Designated Survivor, Shades of Blue and Chicago Fire reuniting with Oz alumni Eamon Walker. At the time of recording, her most recent credits include directing episodes of NCIS, where she has directed 18 episodes over the course of the show's run, as well as the latest incarnation of the Chucky franchise on USA Network, where she has directed four episodes. My episode MVP, an honourable mention goes to Kareem Saeed for his various appearances scattered throughout this episode where he was approached for counsel, whether that be by helping out Ray or Augustus or reassuring Leroy in the moments prior to his death, but the actual award itself goes to Leroy Tid, aka Salah It's been a long time coming for us to actually see Saeed coming to terms with the killing of Adebisi, and we only really got to see that due to the death of Leroy, which was brought about by Leroy's selfless act protecting Saeed. Had that incident not occurred, it's very likely that Zaid would have either continued to bottle up those feelings of guilt that he harbours for himself, or gone to his grave having never come to terms with having killed Adebisi. But Leroy's death has forced him to confront those feelings about each man's respective death, although as I mentioned previously, Saeed likely feels very different about each of them. He has told himself over and over that Adebisi's death occurred in self-defence, whereas Leroy's death was a tragic accident that could have been prevented. It's easy for us from the outside looking in to pontificate about how Saeed should feel with regards to each death, but it was Leroy's selfless action that ultimately got him killed, a possibility that Saeed couldn't have allowed for. Saeed is going to blame himself regardless, but he's still alive because of Leroy. So for those reasons, Leroy Tid, aka Salah Yudin, takes the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so over on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, depending on where you are in the world, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a 5 star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz related or non related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com or on social media on Instagram and Twitter where you can get all the updates about the podcast by following the handle at insideozpodcast. You can also follow the podcast on Mastodon by following the handle at InsideOzPodcast at Mastodon.world, although I'll be totally honest, I do tend to forget that I set that one up a few months back, and it seems that most people stuck with Twitter in the end. But do feel free to follow the Mastodon handle and see if I actually remember to use it. Next time on Inside Oz, we're off down to the underworld with the Greeks as we take a look at Series 4, Episode 14, Orpheus Descending. Where McManus returns to work after Omar's stabbing, Augustus faces up to the consequences of blabbing about Burr's plan, 
Schillinger has some questions about the bloodline of his family's newest addition, and a two-on-two basketball series gets underway between McManus and Verhew. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Yeah.